The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. So often the stories we hear about money and retirement end up being downbeat. Whether it's the fragility of Social Security, unfunded pension funds, or the insufficient size of Americans' nest eggs, it's easy to feel anxious about retirement. Fixing the problem is going to require outside-the-box ideas. The good news is other parts of the world are already taking some creative approaches. I'm Alex Ewell. This week on The Readback, I'm joined by Reshma Kapadia, who wrote this week's cover story about how the rest of the world is coping with a global aging boom. Staten, and she is 103 years old today. She is a great bowler, and she's also from San Hey, Reshma, do you remember Willard Scott and what kind of made him so famous? Of course, you know, giving people that moment of fame on their 100th birthdays. Here is Albert Tayton, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, 100 years old today. And he is a handsome fellow. I remember my mom always joking that she had hoped my grandmother would make that moment just for Willard Scott to show her photo on the Today Show. I know, I know. As I was reporting this story on aging, I came across something that kind of reminded me of that as well. In Japan, when you turn 100, the government sends people sake bowls. Nice. Yeah, a nice gesture. They used to be made out of silver, but more recently they've been uh, just silver-plated. Wow, that seems like quite the metaphor. (laughs) Quite the metaphor for the challenges of aging. As you probably know, Japan is very much in the midst of this aging boom, and they've had a crush of centenarians, and that creates pressure on government's budgets, and thus they needed to cut back a little bit. And turning 100 in Japan just, I guess, simply isn't as special as it once was. No, it is a country with one of the longest life expectancies, and so people are living much longer. So that's both a very hopeful thing, but I, as you talk so much about in the story, that's just one of the many problems the world is facing around this aging boom. Yeah, I mean, I think that when we think about aging, we think about the baby boomers here in the U.S. But, you know, when I was reporting this out, the statistics are are quite global. You know, I think by 2050, one out of six people in this world will be over the age of 65. So it's not just us dealing with aging. Many countries around the world are dealing with it. And sometimes the problem, it's one of those intractable issues that almost feels hopeless at times. Did going out to the rest of the world make you more hopeful that we're going to, both as a country and as a world, solve the issues around aging? Somewhat. I think that it really highlights the fact that we're kind of all in this together, but that there are sort of innovative things happening around the world. And even though we may have different political systems, different cultures, different economic systems, there are things that we can sort of crowdsource to deal with our own situation here. So let's actually go through some of them, because you focused on four countries, Sweden, China, Japan, and Australia. Yep. So let's start with Japan. So they are, you know, at the frontier of this aging boom. And and so they are also dealing with a major labor shortage because they have very low fertility rates. And so they need to get their their folks to stay in the workforce longer, in part because they need to 
help finance their longer lives, and also because there's no one else to hire for those jobs. And so Japan has been raising their um, retirement age gradually, okay. and that helps. And that's largely a mandated age in Japan? So yes, there used to be sort of a mandatory retirement age in Japan. And in the olden days, basically that age was well beyond what the life expectancy of people. So you basically worked your entire life, right? And these days, you know, average life expectancy is 84. And this mandatory, I put that in quotation marks, age is 60. And I put it in quotation marks because there's all these caveats. So if someone wants to continue working past 60, the company needs to find something for them. Often it's a job um, at a lower wage, but it's still something. And, you know, the government is also thinking of sort of raising the age that people can tap their pensions Mm -hmm. to above 70. So that age has also been rising. So, I mean, the Japan overview is sort of how to solve aging, well, work longer. Yes. And what I found interesting is that in Japan, obviously money is part of the reason that people continue to work longer, but it's not the main reason um, in surveys. And just to kind of give you an idea, 59% of men aged 65 to 69 are still working in Japan compared with 38% in the U.S. So right there, there's a little bit of a difference. And the reason we look at just men is because there hasn't been much labor force participation until recently by women in Japan. And of course, if you're working longer, not only are you making money for longer, but you're also not pulling out resources from the retirement system until later in life. And working longer keeps you engaged and active, which actually reduces healthcare costs and increases life expectancy. Right. Tell us a little bit about what you found in Australia. So Australia, you know, is often used as an example of what the U.S. itself could do to fix its Social Security issues. So Australia, during its last recession, which was 27 years ago, took the opportunity to sort of fix its pension system, which was unsustainable. Everyone used to get some sort of pension. One of the things is that they created a mandatory retirement income system where companies have to put in a certain amount of their employees' income. Currently, that number is 9.5%. So that's essentially a forced 401k? It's a forced 401k, yeah. It's called the super in Australia. They still had their old pension, but it's now means-tested. So, you know, for people who didn't have a super that amounted to a certain amount, the state tops it off, basically. And does that mean wealthier folks get less? Yes, that's true. Over time, not just the wealthy, but the majority of Australians will rely on that super account and not the pension. So I could think of some politicians on one side of the aisle that would be very much in favor of that type of policy. How how has that worked out? So what it's done, it's created a safety net for everyone and given them a basic living income, whether you take time out for caregiving or you haven't been employed steadily. In that sense, it's good. It's not without its challenges. People still need to actually add and invest on their own. And there are incentives to do that, just like there are here in the States. So I think that they're going to need to do more to kind of get people to, you know, save more on their own. But the biggest takeaway is that it creates less pressure on fiscal budgets and it gives everyone some sort of basic level of income. Because in the U.S., one of the major issues for retirement security is when people don't have a work-based retirement plan. In any sense, whether this policy that's now been in effect for a couple of decades is popular among Australians? I think it depends on which group you, you talk so to. So it's polarized yeah. much the way yeah. healthcare or other yeah. things are here. 
Interesting. Okay. So what about Sweden? You know, I think a lot of people look to Sweden for many different reasons, and then they are often sort of dismissed because they're a smaller country and they're different than us. But the reason I looked at it was because of their approach to long-term care. So Sweden is different than many of the countries, especially emerging markets in China, where there's no culture of children feeling obligated to take care of their parents. There's very little multi-generational housing. Less than 5% of older Swedes live, you know, in a multi-generational home. Just for comparison, it's like 60% in places like Mexico and China and India. And what is it in the U.S.? So in the U.S., it's 20%. And I think that we may see that go up as, um, you know, people try to deal with the caregiving situation here. But they also have a different view of what a long-term care facility should look like. And so when we think of a nursing home, the initial reaction is like, that's the last place I want to go because they're very institutionalized. And in Sweden, they are modeled around a personal home versus a hospital. They're smaller. There's more customization, flexibility. And the biggest thing about Sweden is that long-term care is covered by the government. Wow. So think about that, you know, and what that does, because that is the sort of black swan that everyone is preparing for and bracing for here in the States. And it's what can append a very thoughtful retirement plan. And long-term care insurance has just become less and less useful, I think. And fewer and fewer people take it. Yeah. Yeah. So the government there has basically said, forget about all that. We're taking care of this. We're taking care of long-term care. But they also have very high labor force participation of women. So there weren't, you know, there aren't active caregivers at home to necessarily take care of aging parents. Okay. Um, so there's all kinds of cultural things at play. And one could argue that by taking care of long-term care, you allow women to exactly, enter the work. which helps your economy. But that doesn't mean that they're not facing pressure. You know, the cohort over 80 is Sweden's fastest growing portion of its population, which, you know, all these benefits are hurting its fiscal situation. And so it's getting harder to get into a long-term care facility. So here in the States, no one wants to go to a nursing home. They're in in Sweden, a lot of people try to sort of lobby to get into the long-term care facility, wow. and it takes longer to do so, and so people are staying at home longer. So it's not without its challenges, okay. and, and there is a sort of a for-profit industry that's just beginning to emerge there. Finally, there's China, which of course is been in the news for many years, but we're focused more on China than ever before, I think, certainly at Barron's. So let's talk about China and and what they're facing from an aging perspective. So here's one number. By 2030, China will have about 360 million people over the age of 60. So that's the population of the United States. Just over the age of 60. Just over the age of 60. They are aging more rapidly than just about any other society because of the economic development that we also often write about here at Barron's. And so in the last 30 years, there's been great economic development that has helped people live longer, has helped with infant mortality rates. And so they're feeling these pressures and feeling them more intensely over a shorter period of time than much of the Western world. But there are other wrinkles in their situation. So, you know, China had the one-child policy between 1979 and 2015. Okay. So if you think about that, that means there are a whole generation, even two generations of children who are on their own and taking care of their parents who are living longer than past generations. The math does not work so well there. The math does not work so well. 
So in China, you know, there's a huge amount of importance put on filial piety, so like taking care of your elders, basically. And so there has never been a long-term care industry in China. You took care of your parents. That's what you did. Right. And add yet another wrinkle, there's been mass migration from rural areas into cities, and older people have stayed in the rural areas, and their children have moved thousands of miles, you know, to to a city to work. All to help drive this market economy. All to help drive this market economy. So what does that mean? That means that in the next five to 10 years, when a lot of these parents go from sort of young old to old old, there's going to be a lot of pressure on those single children to take care of their parents. And unlike much of the developed world, very little in the way of policy to help them. So China has realized that this is a problem. And so in their five-year plans, they are putting into place policies that say we have to prioritize improving health care for older adults. We have to um, have rehab centers and professional nursing homes and daycare facilities. They're piloting a caregiving leave for only children. Those are policies. On the ground, development is still small. Take-up is still low. And much of that development is still centered on urban areas, not necessarily in rural areas where that demand is just, you know, much more stark. Got it. So uh, the people I talk to say that this can, you know, in the next five to 10 years, I mean, that's when it's going to peak in terms of even being a social issue, huh. let alone an economic issue wow. of how these people deal with that. So how would you say kind of wrapping your story together and having done all this work in different countries, did you come away hopeful that as a uh, as humans we'll be able to solve this problem around aging? I think sometimes we think look at aging as a problem and you can see that some countries like look at it in a different way and there's lots of opportunities to aging too, right? If you can tap that aging workforce like in Japan, it's really going to create a much more productive and engaged society. Right. If you can do some of the things to keep people active and engaged, you reduce those healthcare costs that are really going to be a huge issue for many of our, our, us and other countries around the world. And it's fascinating because it, it affects so many of the topics that we write about every exactly. week in Barron's. Exactly. And that's what I found so fascinating about this story. And so, like, you know, obviously I, I cover China from a different lens as well. And every day we see headlines of sort of how we're growing further and further apart and it's an antagonistic relationship. But, you know, both our country and China are, are dealing with this aging situation, and it's going to create massive economic challenges. And it, here is something that we could actually potentially work on together. You know, there's age technology innovation happening in China. It's happening here. I mean, China has a huge amount of people, if you think about Alzheimer's and research and what can be done on in terms of brain health. Right. So, you know, maybe the, maybe this is the, sort of the thing that can bring us all together. And I think it's a fascinating idea. Thanks so much for joining us, Rashma. Thanks, Alex. To read Reshma's story on the global retirement crisis, check out this week's edition of Barron's or, as always, barrons.com. I'm Alex Yule. The Readback is produced by Meta Lutzhoff. We'll see you next Wednesday. In the meantime, have a great week, and please remember to review us on iTunes or wherever else you listen to podcasts.